They revealed the existence of Soviet ballistic missiles that were capable of carrying nuclear warheads. And that was a really dangerous thing, especially since President Kennedy, uh, twice the previous month, said that if the Soviets had decided to place offensive weapon systems in Cuba, uh, the gravest issues would arise. So Kennedy had essentially laid down his red line twice, uh, once on September 4th, because there was chatter in Washington that the Soviets were bringing missiles into Cuba, and there were pictures revealing that they were. Those missiles happened to be surface-to-air missiles, but what was really dangerous were the ballistic missiles that could uh, land on the United States, and there were two kinds that the Soviets were trying to bring in. Medium-range ballistic missiles with a radius of about 1,100 miles or so, and intermediate-range ballistic missiles, which would have covered almost the entire United States. And so when Kennedy was shown pictures of these likely installations that were going up on the 16th of uh, October 1962, uh, that was gravely concerning. And so he decided to gather together the senior-most officials in his government, defense, state, intelligence, as well as others who he was particularly close with, to try to figure out what to do about it. And fortunately for Kennedy, he was able to keep this under wraps for roughly a week. So it was a Tuesday when he found out Kennedy would not go public with this information until the following Monday when he delivered this televised address to the American people, laying out what the Soviets had done and what he proposed to do about it which was to impose a blockade of Cuba in an effort to try to get those missiles crated and then uh, moved out of, uh, off of of Cuba. That's a a tough ask. And so for the next several days, from the 22nd all the way up to the end of the crisis on October 28th, there was a lot of diplomatic wrangling, threats, bargaining, back-channel diplomacy to try to figure out how to get the weapons off and what to give Khrushchev essentially in return as a diplomatic bargain. Hi, I'm Zach, and I'm joined by my colleague, Craig. 1962 was a heated time during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. The primary concern about the spread of communism around the globe put the two superpowers at odds. According to the U.S. State Department, quote, After the failed U.S. attempt to overthrow the Castro regime in Cuba with the Bay of Pigs invasion, and while the Kennedy administration planned Operation Mongoose, in July 1962, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev reached a secret agreement with Cuban Premier Fidel Castro to place Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba to deter any future invasion attempt. In the earlier clip of University of Virginia Miller Center's Presidential Recordings Program Chair Mark Silverstone, we heard of President John F. Kennedy's, quote, red line regarding surface-to-air and medium- and intermediate-range ballistic missiles in September of 1962. After the United States' discovery of the existence of nuclear missiles present in Cuba, these two superpowers were on the brink of engaging in a nuclear conflict. President Kennedy subsequently gathered his advisors and prepared to inform the public. Let's now listen to a portion of President Kennedy's Oval Office address from Monday, October 22, 1962. Good evening, my fellow citizens. 
This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Upon receiving the first preliminary hard information of this nature, last Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., I directed that our surveillance be stepped up. And having now confirmed and completed our evaluation of the evidence and our decision on a course of action, this government feels obliged to report this new crisis to you in fullest detail. The characteristic of these new missile sites indicate two distinct types of installations. Several of them include medium-range ballistic missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead for a distance of more than 1,000 nautical miles. Each of these missiles, in short, is capable of striking Washington, D.C., the Panama Canal, Cape Canaveral, Mexico City, or any other city in the southeastern part of the United States, in Central America, or in the Caribbean area. Additional sites not yet completed appear to be designed for intermediate range ballistic missiles capable of traveling more than twice as far and thus capable of striking most of the major cities in the Western Hemisphere, ranging as far north as Hudson's Bay, Canada, and as far south as Lima, Peru. In addition, jet bombers capable of carrying nuclear weapons are now being uncrated and assembled in Cuba while the necessary air bases are being prepared. This urgent transformation of Cuba into an important strategic base by the presence of these large, long-range and clearly offensive weapons of sudden mass destruction constitutes an explicit threat to the peace and security of all the Americas. In the clip, President Kennedy described to the public the evidence that was discovered in Cuba as a result of U.S. surveillance. But how would the rest of the crisis unfold and how would the two nations resolve the issue? Joining us for a conversation today on this topic is Brian Vandermark, Professor of History at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. We'll talk about this time in history, including the state of global affairs, the discovery of missiles in Cuba, and the significance of these 13 critical days in 1962. So stick around. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Joining us today is Brian Vandermark, Professor of History at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. So, Brian, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your role at the Naval Academy? Well, I, uh, I've been teaching history at the Naval Academy for 32 years. Uh, I have a Ph.D. from UCLA, and uh, between the time I completed my graduate degree and began teaching at the Naval Academy, I had moved to Washington and worked with Richard Holbrook on Clark Clifford's memoir. And a few years into my teaching duties at the Naval Academy, I took a leave of absence to help Robert McNamara co-write his Vietnam memoir in retrospect. 
Excellent. Yeah. So, uh, so for our listeners who may be new to learning about the period, can you set the scene of the events and the global tensions leading up to the Cuban Missile Crisis? Yes. Um, when we look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, we're looking at 13 days in October of 1962. But in order to understand them, you have to look at them in the larger context of the Cold War, which had been underway since the late 1940s between the United States and the Soviet Union. In the early 60s are probably the most dangerous, most confrontational phase of the entire Cold War. Uh, you also have to keep in mind the uh, failed April 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion, where CIA-supported invasion force of Cuban uh, exiles uh, failed to topple Castro. And I think this created the fear uh, within uh, the Cuban government that there would be another U.S. invasion, and that is what encouraged them to seek Soviet protection in the form of defensive missiles. Uh, at the same time, the presence of the missiles in Cuba, once they were discovered, uh, exacerbated American fears of expanding communist influence near our own shores. So uh, specific to Cuba and thinking about the role of the president in, in that situation that you just described, can you talk a little bit about the circumstances that President Kennedy faced um, during that time and his initial response? Well, the installation of nuclear missiles in Cuba um, were viewed by the Cubans who requested Soviet aid as defensive, i.e. intended to prevent another Bay of Pigs invasion. But the Americans perceived them in exactly the opposite manner, which is as offensive weapons that posed a strategic threat to American security. And in addition to that, because President Kennedy was the leader of a democracy, public opinion was always very important in terms of shaping American policy and his outlook. And he lived in an era in which Cold War atmosphere in the United States was quite strong. So he was always uh, viewing the situation and choosing among alternatives in the context of the American public, which is very hawkish in his attitude toward the Soviet Union. Well, I'm thinking about that public opinion and moving through the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Can you talk about any of the uh, major events that occurred during those two weeks and a little bit about the significance of each? Well, I think if you look at the 13 days, and they've been examined quite intensively by a lot of scholars and journalists, you can see that there is a, a series of uh, reactions to the crisis that American decision makers and Soviet leaders go through. In the case of Kennedy and his advisors, once they um, discovered evidence of the missile's installation, uh, their first reaction was to uh, initiate a U.S. airstrike to take them out. That included President Kennedy as well as all of his advisors. This is on the morning of October 16th. By that evening, emotions had cooled a bit. And at, by then, both Kennedy and Defense Secretary McNamara both stated their belief that Soviet missiles in Cuba, frankly, didn't affect the strategic balance of terror. That uh, the Soviet Union already possessed the capacity to fire at least a small number of nuclear weapons on the American homeland, which would have done devastating damage, regardless of whether or not there are any Soviet missiles in Cuba. And it was also at this meeting that uh, McNamara questioned the wisdom of U.S. airstrike, believing it could lead to a nuclear war. Um, at the time, Kennedy acknowledged the domestic political pressure on him to do something forceful. Um, and McNamara's advice to him was to implement a naval blockade instead. Now, as the days went by, Kennedy sought and received a lot of advice from various people. 
the following day, on the 17th of October, he met with the U.S. ambassador to the U.S., Adlai Stevenson, who had been the Democratic Party nominee for president in both 1952 and 1956. Stevenson urged Kennedy not to rush into military action. Instead, he urged him to negotiate a solution, particularly swapping the removal of U.S. missiles in Turkey for the removal of Soviet missiles in Cuba. As the days went by, Kennedy had many meetings with his advisors in the cabinet room, going back and forth on the, over the best response. He also met with the Soviet foreign minister, Andrei Kromyko, in the Oval Office on the evening of the 18th of October. At that time, Kromyko reiterated the defensive intent of Soviet actions in Cuba, and I think for the first time that really registered with Kennedy. Um, later that night, he expressed his preference for a naval blockade, which is uh, having traveled a long road from favoring an airstrike on the first day that he had learned of the missile's existence. He also, however, had to deal with uh, their constituents in the American government, particularly the military service chiefs. Uh, the next day, he met with them in the cabinet room, and they unanimously and aggressively criticized the naval blockade as too weak and pressured him to attack Cuba immediately. Uh, Kennedy refused the advice, and he uh, reminded them that his overriding desire was to avoid a nuclear war, not to start one. Um, the next day, he continued to meet with his advisors. Um, the service chief, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Maxwell Taylor, who was probably the most moderate of all the senior military officers, argued with Defense Secretary McNamara over the merits of an airstrike versus a blockade. Uh, but Kennedy decided on the naval blockade. Um, he also, the following day, um, confided to the British ambassador to Washington, whom he had known for many years and trusted in his discretion, that he was willing to accept a missile swap with the Soviets, but he feared that acknowledging that would create a lot of political criticism from the right within the United States to such a compromise. And the following afternoon on the 22nd, uh, Kennedy met with congressional leaders to notify them that he was going to announce a naval blockade uh, in a television address. And one of the most powerful and influential uh, senators in the uh, U.S. Congress, a gentleman named Richard Russell from Georgia, criticized what he termed the weakness of a naval blockade and demanded that Kennedy invade Cuba. Kennedy resisted the pressure. Um, the following day, he actually reached out to a journalist who was a close friend of his by the name of Charles Bartlett and urged him to float the idea of a missile exchange with the Soviet contact he had in Washington. The Soviet contact passed the proposal along but warned Bartlett and therefore Kennedy that if the blockade was implemented, Soviet ships would not stop in the face of it. Um, of, course, of course, the tension is rising as a result of all of this. Um, on the following day, the 24th, Khrushchev ordered Soviet ships to stop short of a blockade line. So he's seeking to avoid an irreversible confrontation. Um, and he soon thereafter decided privately to remove the missiles from Cuba in return for no invasion pledge from the United States. That angered a lot of the hardliners in the Kremlin. Um, and at the same time, Kennedy decided to let non-military Soviet ships through the blockade line. So like Khrushchev, he was seeking a way of avoiding a showdown that would be, have irreversible consequences. Um, on the 26th of October in the morning, he had another meeting with his advisors. He used Adlai Stevenson, who had privately urged him to find a negotiated solution, to advocate a no-invasion pledge and a missile swap uh, and all of the advisors criticized Stevenson as being too soft and weak on the Soviets in this regard. 
Um, that night, Kennedy received a letter from Khrushchev accepting um, the idea of a no-invasion pledge and an end to the naval blockade in, returning, in return for removing the missiles from Cuba. The following day, Khrushchev added the condition that there needed to be a missile swap because by then he had received the Kennedy proposal via Bartlett and, and the um, contact in, in Washington. That same day, Kennedy endorsed the missile swap in a meeting with his advisors over the unanimous objection of all of them. And, and I think that's quite significant um, because in a sense, he proved to be the most dovish of everyone in the room in terms of his determination to avoid a war with the Soviets over this issue. It was that same afternoon that U.S. reconnaissance plane straight over Siberia, which prompted the Soviet Union to scramble a war plane to shoot it down, which was a near disaster. Um, and later that same afternoon, he Kennedy continued to express his um, preference for a missile swap in the face of opposition from all of his advisors, except now his brother Bobby, who I'm certain he had informed in the meantime as to what his position was. McNamara um, also reported at this meeting that the U.S. reconnaissance plane had been shot down over Cuba, um, which, of course, is raising the threat level of the confrontation even higher um, the service chiefs, the military urged retaliation. Kennedy refused to do that. Um, and after that, he privately um, announced to his closest advisors he was going to inform the Soviets through his brother Bobby that he had accepted a missile swap as well as a no-invasion pledge, but the missile swap would have to be done secretly. In other words, the Soviets would not be uh, allowed to announce that the United States had reciprocated the removal of Cuba. Soviet missiles from Cuba for U.S. missiles being withdrawn from Turkey because of his fear that the domestic political reaction on the part of the American people would be ferociously critical of that. And again, it illustrates how extraordinarily influential the hawkish mood of the American people was in terms of shaping his perception of what was feasible in terms of decision-making. He used his brother to inform Soviets through their ambassador in Washington, and almost exactly that same moment, the Soviet nuclear submarine came close to firing a nuclear torpedo at a U.S. Navy ship, which was tracking it in the Caribbean. Um, and of course, again, it's just it's miraculous that uh, none of these particular incidents during these 13 days didn't um, ignite a conflagration between the two countries. It was the following day on the 28th that the crisis was resolved when Khrushchev accepted Kennedy's proposal, and he rushed a public announcement of the missiles removal from Cuba because he, too, like Kennedy, realized that things were on the edge of the catastrophe. That's, that's fantastic and answers a lot of the questions that we had. But um, if we're considering the current geopolitical climate and even future tensions, uh, what are some of the lessons that we can learn from the de-escalation of the crisis and this era of the Cold War? Well, I think there, there are several important lessons to, to be learned from this. And that is that to prevent a crisis from becoming a catastrophe, it requires leaders on both sides of the crisis to place primary importance on averting the catastrophe of a nuclear war between each other. And I think Kennedy Khrushchev, at the end of the day, thankfully, uh, made that their priority. And in, in relationship to a lot of their own advisors, they proved to be some of the most dovish people of all because they understood uh, the risk that this thing could spill over into a nuclear war, which would have been catastrophic for both countries. 
Uh, in other words, it demonstrated the fundamental rationality of both of them um, because they understood the insanity of a nuclear war. Um, I think, as I said before, too, that entire crisis demonstrated how hawkish the Cold War atmosphere of American early 60s was. Kennedy's intuition and his inclinations after the first day or so were very dovish, but he was reluctant to pursue that um, approach or to publicize that out of fear that he would be attacked for being too soft on the Soviets in this crisis. And that, to me, leads to another important lesson, which is the crucial factor of domestic political pressures in presidential decision-making, not only on uh, domestic issues, but foreign policy and national security as well. And for the United States, that's a very important dynamic because in a democracy, public opinion is ultimately sovereign. Khrushchev didn't have to worry about Soviet public opinion, but Kennedy did. So in thinking about the the history that, that you've walked us through and uh, the present day and, and potentially future lessons that we can take from the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, as our audience for this podcast primarily consists of teachers and educators across the country, do you have any other significant information or stories or uh, resources that you'd like to share that might prove useful in teaching young people about this crisis? Well, I'm just reminded of something that Robert Pachmer said uh, repeatedly and publicly um, in the years after the missile crisis, which was the um, it was a miracle um, that this crisis didn't lead to a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was just plain dumb luck or the grace of God um, that kept the two countries from uh, slipping over the precipice into the abyss. Um, in terms of uh, resources, uh, unquestionably, the most significant in terms of understanding the American side of the, of the crisis and decision-making uh, are the uh, White House tapes that President Kennedy uh, recorded of meetings in the White House during these days in October of 1962. They are all available on the Kennedy Library website, and it is unquestionably the best and most insightful single primary source for understanding American decision-making process during that entire period. Brian, thank you again for your time today. We really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Thank you for tuning into this episode as we reflect upon the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. As you heard before the break, our guest U.S. Naval Academy history professor Brian Vandermark provided detailed context and highlighted significant moments from those 13 critical days in October 1962. He also underscored the role of the National Security Council and importance of considering differing perspectives throughout the crisis. On C-SPAN Classroom, we offer a variety of resources for you to dive deeper into that moment in time, whether it's for your own interest or for use in your classroom. And we have a recent lesson featuring Mark Silverstone, who heads up the Presidential Recordings Program at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. And we begin that lesson by examining some of the actual surveillance images that were initially captured over Cuba. The lesson goes on to explore various additional aspects of the crisis and notably includes archival audio recordings of conversations between President John F. Kennedy and various members of his advisory board as they strategize throughout the crisis. After students view the videos, they can reflect upon the characteristics of the leaders involved and explain the role that leadership played throughout the crisis. And they can also discuss the perspectives that President Kennedy and his advisory team had to consider as they weighed their options on how to solve this crisis and how they were able to successfully resolve the situation without going to war. The lesson culminates with an activity for students to synthesize and contemplate all of that information through the lens of present-day tensions between Russia and the United States. 
Thanks for sharing that lesson, uh, Craig. And that was actually designed by our other uh, colleague, Pam, uh, and really includes a lot of great activities uh, for your students to, to use in uh, your classroom. But if you're looking for something maybe a, a bit less lengthy for your students, make sure to check out our On This Day in History resource for the Cuban Missile Crisis. I know as a former South Carolina history teacher, I didn't even have an entire class period, let alone an hour or a half hour of time to dedicate to this historic geopolitical event. But our On This Day in History resources feature just a few video clips, along with a brief graphic organizer that supports students' analysis and reflection of the event, whether it's done individually or in a jigsaw with a small group of students. Specific to the Cuban Missile Crisis resource, students watch an archival CIA film about the era, a 1962 newsreel featuring video and audio recordings from the time, contemporary commentary and panel discussions from historians, a lecture on the aerial reconnaissance of Cuba, and primary source audio recording from the Kennedy tapes. As students watch each of the short video clips, they respond to prompts including what occurred during the event, what were the different perspectives of the event, and what is the legacy of the event, supporting each of their responses with evidence from the video clips. As with all key events in history, we reflect on the lessons learned, what worked and what didn't work, so as to inform decision-making for the future. And as we discovered from our conversation with Professor Vandermark and through our C-SPAN video resources, President Kennedy led the country through this crisis with reflection, collaboration, and communication. As we wrap up today's podcast, President Kennedy's grandson Jack Kennedy Schlossberg reflects on his grandfather's approach to dealing with this conflict and his vision for the future. The Cuban Missile Crisis is now part of America's storied history is a signature moment of the 20th century, that we are here, together, to remember today is a testament to the wisdom of my grandfather and all those who, 50 years ago, braved the most trying 13 days in our nation's history. My grandfather would love this event, not just because every Irishman loves a bit of praise, but because today we are here to bear witness to the past for the sake of our future. Admirers of President Kennedy know that he was a student of history, I try to be, and as I study my grandfather, the man, and the president, I believe his greatest asset was indeed his understanding of the past. The inspiration he found and the achievements of others are what guided him through the crisis. It's what inspired him to send a man to the moon, and it is what compelled him to search for a lasting peace. President Kennedy is known for his own inspiring words, but he also looked to the great men of history for guidance, just as I do to him. He knew that the problems of the 1960s had their counterparts in other struggles. In his address at Rice University in 1962, President Kennedy quoted William Bradford, speaking in 1630 of the founding of the Plymouth Bay Colony, who said that all great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulty, and both must be enterprised and overcome with answerable courage. Once again, we'd like to thank Brian Vandemark, professor of history at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, for being part of the discussion today and for offering his expertise on the Cuban Missile Crisis and its implications for society and education in today's world. And for listeners who would like to take a deeper dive into those 13 days, you can listen to a bonus episode from C-SPAN's Presidential Recordings podcast that focuses on the Cuban Missile Crisis and includes original primary source phone calls between JFK and his senior advisors as well as recordings of press conferences and audio tapes of Oval Office addresses. You can tune in wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And you can access the lesson that we discussed and the On This Day in History resources that we highlighted in this episode on our featured resources page at cspan.org slash classroom. And if you'd ever like to connect with our team to learn more about what we have to offer to teachers and students, please email us anytime at educate at c-span.org. That's it for this week. Please remember to like and follow our podcasts wherever you listen so you don't miss our next episode. Until then, thank you for joining us.